Father God, I pray that your presence would be with us this morning. And I pray that we would understand all that that means. And that that would cause us to tremble. And to get afraid. Because we realize all that your presence is and all that it means. I pray also that there would be great joy at your presence and great praise and I pray that you would speak to us. Speak through me right now to say what needs to be said in the way that it needs to be said and cause us to have a right response to these things. Cause us to desire you to desire more of your presence, to desire to never leave your presence. Cause us to see Christ as the fulfillment of all these things we're going to be talking about this morning. And cause us to put all of our hope in him. And in Jesus' name, amen. We were insane to plan this week. So we've been going through an Old Testament overview, Old Testament survey, uh, trying to focus on God's interactions with people. And it's been pretty cool. It's been really cool up until this point. Um, well, it's going to be cool, at, even cooler at this point. Um, but uh, we've been trying to observe God's interactions with people, not just like, not focusing on what the people did, but focusing on what God did. Uh, and it's been Pretty cool. I'm glad that we, we took this route. It's, it's caused us to look at things differently, I think, uh, at least me. But uh, we had mapped this out, and we we're like, all right, we got like 12, 13 weeks, and we're going to go through the whole Testament. So one week is going to be Moses. <laughs> and I thought Jacob was hard. Like a couple weeks, we took a break last week, but a couple weeks ago I did Jacob, and Jacob was like 25 chapters of Genesis, and I thought, wow, that's a ton. We didn't even get through everything, and we didn't end where I wanted to end historically. Um, and I thought that that was hard. This week, I pretty much read the rest of the Pentateuch. And, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, there's so much here. And there's, this defines the rest of the Bible. Um, and, and there's so many good interactions. And how are we going to do this? I think that it could be ugly. It could be messy, just like the story we're going to look at. Um, so... We'll see what happens. We need to get to Egypt, though. So when last we left Jacob's family, they were still in Canaan, the land of Canaan. So God promised Abraham, when he he set him apart and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you and your people, know for certain, this was in Genesis 15, know for certain that your descendants are going to live as slaves in a land that is not their own for 400 years. He said that way before it happened. And... 
So what happens is Jacob has a son, Joseph. You're probably familiar with this story, most of us. He has a son, Joseph. Uh, long story short, Joseph becomes a leader in Egypt, uh, and Joseph gets a dream, or interprets a dream that there's going to be this massive famine that's going to affect the entire region, not just like Egypt where they are, but the entire, that part of the world. So he knows this in advance, so they prepare for it, and when it happens, they're ready. So Joseph is down there by himself, but his family isn't. But they eventually they have to come down to him to get help. And so the famine is so bad, they can't move back home because this famine lasts for like seven years. There's nothing to go back to. It's a wasteland now. Everything's dead. So they have to move to Egypt. So all of them come down and they stay there. And that's, that's a great thing. That's salvation in that moment. Um, but long term, that became a problem for them, because you can read about it in Genesis 47, and I'm not going to read through it, but just if you want to take a note, Genesis 47 talks about how they became slaves. They, they came to Egypt, and they gave them their money, and they said, let us buy food from you, and they, they, it got to the point where they took all their money. They said, there's no money left. We don't have anything left to give you, but we still don't have any food. There's, the famine is still going, so, he, so Joseph says, okay, well, give me your things, like your livestock, so they give them their livestock until there's no livestock left. And then he says, okay, well, give me your land and your people. So they, they, the, pretty much the entire region of the world sells themselves to Egypt, the government of Egypt. So that's how they become slaves. They stay in Egypt, and they increase there for 400 years. And as we talked about with um, Abraham, before Abraham, um, apart from God's intervention in history, things just only continually get worse. And so over the course of this 400 years, this waiting period, we are going to see that things get worse for them. So turn to Exodus 1. We'll start in verse 8. And if you don't have a Bible, sorry, we have Bibles up on the back bar. This is like around page 29 or 30 back there. So if you need one, raise your hand. Somebody will grab you one. Um, we, don't, we want you to be able to follow along if you can. So verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then, verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife, as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So things are getting pretty bad. But, verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. 
the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people and said, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. There's so much to talk about. I I originally wanted to emphasize this, and I feel like we don't need to skip over it because of everything that's going on right now. We talked about this before. I don't, want, um, I don't want the pulpit here to be like a news desk where every week we're driven by what's going on in the world right now. But, but at the same time, I feel like we need to respond to some things, right? And <clears throat> with regard to this, since we got to this part of the story, I thought this would be the time to respond to this if we're going to. So abortion in the US, does this just not sound like, I mean, it's a similar sort of thing. And and people, irrational people, would probably try to convince you how it's different. Oh, this is this evil king, this government, coming over these people and forcing them to do something they don't wanna do. But if you wanna carry the logic forward, they're slaves, they are owned by this person, he is their property. So if you wanna carry the same logic that's used today, it's my body, I get to do what I want to, with it, then this king has every right, according to that logic, to say, kill every one of those kids. This is insanity. And we don't have time. We could could preach a sermon on this. But this is insanity. And this is the sort of thing that God is not going to let stand. This is the sort of thing that he's going to save them from. And when we talk about the law here in a second, we're going to find out that God is not okay with this. He's not going to allow these sorts of things to happen. And I find great comfort in that. I can't spend a whole lot more time other than to say that today because we've got so much to talk about. But I hope that you see the example of those midwives who said, listen, we are not going to pay attention to your word over God's. They saw the life of these kids as valuable, as God-given, and they defied the government to protect them. And if we have to do the same thing, Let's do the same thing. He looked favorably on them because they would not trust the insanity of that government or of those people who wanted to kill those kids, though they were under their authority. So we need to have that same sort of attitude, and we need to set an example. And I would go even further, not to just not endorse abortion and to go the other way, but at the same time, change your attitude towards kids if it needs to be changed. Because I talk to a lot of people, particularly people our age, who are just really down on kids. They hate kids. They don't want to be around kids. It's such an inconvenience, all this sort of thing. And for us, do not be that kind of person. I don't care if if you aren't good around kids, but don't have the attitude of like, that they are burdensome and that they are worthless. Because when you, when you participate in that discussion, you are furthering that agenda, that, that they are not worth something. So it's just like, I hate that this is a side note for this, uh, for this series, um, but it's important. There, there's insane stuff going on. And if you, have, if you have willfully looked away, you need to go, you need to go and look into this. 
Uh, and there's, I mean, the news has been crazy about Planned Parenthood and all this stuff going on recently. You need to go watch some of those videos. And, and there was recently a presentation in front of the, the uh, Congress that was, um, it was not um, a biased um, presenter. Um, it was just a doctor talking about the abortion procedure. And they tried to wipe it from the record because it was just like it, it seared their consciences. <laughs> like it, it killed them to have to listen to this man describe uh, midterm abortions. Um, you can go watch those videos. And I, I would encourage you to do that just to get a full view of just the insanity that's going on right now. So they are having to deal with insanity, evil, the, the uh, Hebrews are. And they, it appears as though they are without hope. They're slaves, they're beaten, they're persecuted. Now the government wants to kill all their kids. And it doesn't look like there's any hope. But God is going to intervene. And he's going to create hope where there was none. Where there was only sin, he's going to create salvation. So we're going to read about Moses. Moses should have been aborted. But he wasn't. Exodus 3. Or sorry, now we'll, we'll, we might have to skip all that because like I said, there's a ton to get through. Um, Moses is born. His mom tries to keep him three months or so. Nurses him, uh, can't stand the thought of getting rid of him. So they try to keep him, but it gets to the point that he gets older and they're like, we can't hide this anymore. And the, the, the king has said, if they find this kid, throw him in the river. So what are we gonna do? So they put him in a basket, which... I don't know what they were hoping at that point in time because that's not, that's not a great situation to be in either, three-month-old in a basket on a river. Um, but, but they send him downriver, and he is collected by Pharaoh's daughter and is saved, and God ends up pairing him back with his mom so that she can raise him for like four or five years of his life, and he grows up as an Israelite. Like, he identifies with them. But when he gets a little bit older, they say, okay, he's, you've nursed him. He's, he's mine now. Give him back to me. So he goes to live with Pharaoh, but um, he's an Israelite, and he knows it. And, and he's been saved from this insanity. So he goes to live uh, out in the wilderness because he kills a man because he's trying to protect his brothers. And while he's out there, chapter 3, God is going to step in. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, And said, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet from the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of, the la- out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. We'll just pause there. Um, So again, they're in this hopeless situation, and God is, is now coming back to them. He, he said to Abraham forever ago that he was going to do this. And, and now he steps in and he calls out Moses. And Moses is reluctant. He says, man, I'm not the guy to get up in front of kings and talk and, and try to persuade anybody of anything. And God says, you're focused on the wrong thing. I make lips. I make tongues. I make lungs. I make mouths move. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, he persists, though, and eventually God sends him, his brother Aaron, to work alongside him, says, you're going to go and you're going to talk to this king. So we're not going to read through all the plagues. You probably know what's going on with the plagues. They go to Pharaoh. He does not like the idea. Um, and he says, no, you cannot do it. He actually gives them a harder time, makes them work harder, takes away some of their resources to be able to do their job. And there's this back and forth, and it's this cyclical thing. God says, if you do not listen, you will be judged. We will send judgment on Egypt, and he continues to just say, don't care, pretty much. He doesn't listen. So there's a time that we could talk about there also, how uh, God hardens his heart against, uh, against this cause, and he just keeps rejecting God, and he, 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 he becomes obsessed with trying to get his way. It's almost like a Captain Ahab sort of thing. It's like he dies trying to kill these people. God kills him because he's so obsessed with overcoming them and not listening to God. But God does amazing things. And you could talk about just this interaction, the fact that God is now showing Israel who he is. And this is what you're going to see in this whole ordeal. Previous to this, he has... He's, he's talked to their fathers in intimate kind of settings. It's like just, just you and me having a conversation. I'm going to promise this to you. And it's been really cool. And he's done amazing things. He's caused miracles, but not on this level. This is huge. And this is, a, this is unique. This is not something that you see throughout the Old Testament. So it's worth, it's worth seeing God in, when he introduces himself to this people It's not just one man, it's all of them. He introduces himself as the ruler of creation. And he says, I rule all of these things. And so he causes the river to turn to blood. He causes hail and storms to come, darkness to cover the entire land, to show them how big he is. He's not just some little dinky wooden idol that they're going to carve and put in all their closets like everybody else in the world was doing. He's going to show them through creation, who he is. And, and by the time he's done, all of Egypt is ready to, to see the end of these people. They are, they're given stuff away. They say, just take our gold, take our stuff, just leave, please. And so the Israelites walk out, and there's millions of them. 
and they walk out with all the money and all the goods and everything, and, and they go out. And God instructs them in chapter 12. This is like the first of the kind of law that he's going to give to them, and this is cool. He instructs them to have this Passover meal. They're going to sacrifice to God, which is something that they have not been doing as a nation. But they're going to sacrifice to God. And he says, this final plague that sweeps through is going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. But to spare you, I want you to go and take a lamb without blemish, without any kind of problems. And I want you to keep it for 14 days. And then on the day that I appoint, I want you to slaughter it. And I want you to put the blood of it on your door so that as this, uh, calls it the destroyer, this angel goes through here. He's going to see that that lamb died instead of your firstborn. And he tells them, you're going to have a meal with this lamb. After you sacrifice it and put the blood on the door, you're going to eat it. And you're going to remember forever that I have done this. And so this is one of many connections to Jesus in, in the Old Testament. I, there's so many that I can't just like save it all up to the end and then just like cover it all there. So... Right here in Passover, this points to Christ in several ways. He, he says to take the lamb, right? And, and this is, it's explicit when you get into the New Testament. Like, the, the, the point of the day, on the specific day of the month, at the hour that Jesus died, was the hour that they were told to kill the lamb to save their families. And so this is pointing to Jesus. And this meal that they have also, that the last supper that Jesus has is this Passover meal. So he has it a day early, which is weird. Um, but he has this meal, and, and he, he gives it new meaning. He says, remember me now, Christ does. You've, rem- you've remembered this salvation from Egypt, now you remember me. And so there's a lot of cool things in here. And I apologize that we're not like getting up to like snowballing, but um, there's just so much. So they leave. They leave in haste. That night, the Egyptians say, get out of here. So they leave and they go to this mountain. And God says, you are now going to meet me. You've seen my service. You've seen my works. Now you're going to meet me. So they go to this mountain. Mount Sinai, which is like three days out from Egypt. They, they're marching out in the wilderness, and they go to meet with God. And as they approach, before they can even see the mountain, they hear this noise. And it's just like this, this booming, thundering noise. And God says, you need to get ready. You can't just walk up here without considering all that this is, all that this means. You can't just walk up into my presence. He tells them to, to take a bath and to put on some nice clothes. It's like, and and to, to prepare their hearts to meet with God. And so they do, and they go up. <clears throat> so in chapter 19... We're going to read verse 16. On the morning of the third day, 
he had given them three days to prepare. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest they break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the mountain, because you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down and told them. So this is the first that many of them are seeing or hearing of God beyond the plagues, but, but he's been talking to Moses. So they know Moses is the guy, Moses is talking to God, but, but they haven't heard the specific words of God other than God wants us to leave. So he's going to introduce himself now to this people, and the way that he does it is epic, to say the least. Like, this is, this is crazy. He covers this entire mountain, and this mountain is huge. So can you imagine just like trekking up to this mountain that's covered in smoke, this huge noise, and, and hearing the voice of God just like booming, talking to them. And he's told them, get ready, you be clean, don't come up here like, like you just rolled out of bed and, and, and came up and decided you want to talk to me, um, and don't, don't try to touch the mountain. He, he's established himself already as, as the creator. He is over all creation. But now he's establishing himself. He's letting them know, I am holy. I am set apart. You cannot approach me flippantly. You cannot come to me without my say-so. And it's this very, like, Serious sort of thing. Like when your parent calls you in with a stern voice when you're a kid and you're like, what's going to happen? It's like that to like infinity. Multiply that by infinity. You get this, this idea like just like quivering and you can't speak. And, and you're before this presence. And God spends time with Moses while he's up there. He talks to him for like 40 days. Moses is up there just talking to God. And and during that time, God is letting him know who he is, who letting them know who he is. And he's he's giving them all kinds of information. 
you think of like the start of a country, if you were gonna start a country, what would you do? You'd have to come up with like a constitution and all these sorts of things. Um, I, I know that that seems weird, but at the same time, you go and you read and that's pretty much what was going on. He was like, here's gonna be your law code, here's gonna be how, you, how your government works, all this stuff. Like he, God is planning all this stuff out for them. And he, he gives them standards. He gives them ideals based on who he is. And, and we're not, we, we definitely don't have the time to like read through all of that. Like, uh, a lot of Exodus, the rest of Exodus is, is geared towards that. And Leviticus is all laws. It's all these things. It's all the parts of the Bible that we usually get up to and say, here we go. I'm not going to have fun reading through this. It's difficult to read through. But at the same time, it's, it's awesome. Because... When God says something like, I want you to be holy. I want you to make sure that you're living right. I want you to do this. That's a, we've talked about this before a few times. That's a statement of, of righteousness. Like, that's a statement of goodness. Coming from the mouth of somebody who knows, who, the only person who knows what real righteousness and real goodness is. They just came from a place that thought it was okay to kill babies and to beat people senseless, and to take away all their tools, and to tell them to keep working, this place that had no standards. And now they get to this God who knows everything and tells them, this is how you need to live. Our attitude towards that is often, I cannot believe I'm having to read this list of rules right now. It's killing me. Um, but for them, this is like, like life-giving. We're talking about a bunch of ignorant people. We, and, and we're right there with them. We are ignorant people. Like, when God is not around, intervening like this, the Bible talks about in Judges and some places through this, this period of history that the people just go around doing whatever they think is best. Like, whatever's best for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live according to what my moral standard is. That breeds chaos in, in most, in every case, when you see it in the Bible. It's just a mess. And that's, that's where our culture is now. It's just like we're becoming more and more relativistic. It's just like everybody set their own standard. Everybody do their own thing. Nobody else bother anybody else. And, and so it's, it's an awesome thing to have a God who knows everything tell you, let me just show you the, the boundaries and the barriers, the perimeter of this thing this life that you're supposed to live. And let me very clearly explain how it's supposed to work so that you are going to prosper, so that your life is going to flourish. Because apart from these things, it's just all going to go to hell, literally. Like, you cannot keep yourself straight without me telling you how you need to live. So when they get this instruction, it's not just like this list of rules. It's, it's, it's in a sense... I don't want to say life-giving because we know the ultimate um, point of that. Um, but it's, it's wisdom. It's good. We don't have time to read through all of those things. But as he's up there for 40 days, and I don't know how this happens, the Israelites are down there at the bottom of this mountain. There's still smoke and thunder and all this stuff. I guess they've become desensitized to it, and they thought maybe this is just a big storm. I don't know. But they start thinking, Moses left a long time ago. 
What do we do now? And they immediately want to revert back to what they know from Egypt. So they say, let's make gods for ourselves. It's just so retarded. <laughs> like they're, they're sitting at the bottom of this mountain. God is talking right there. There's this big thundering noise. And yet they, they say, let's make gods for ourselves. And Aaron, who's supposed to be the stand-up guy, the leader, is like, okay, I'll help you. And, and so they do. And, and, and towards the end of that, that time, God says, why don't you go back down to your people and um, set them straight because they're down there building gods and, and making idols. And so Moses goes down there and he's, he has this little fit of rage, throws these, these, these tablets down that God has written himself and, and he, he goes and he, he melts the thing down, he grinds it into a powder, he pours it into water and tells them all to drink it, like eat your mistakes. And, and then he... He, he pleads, like he, he lays down in front of God and says, please don't kill these people. And then he goes back up to the mountain to talk to God and God says, I'm going to kill these people. And, and they have this really interesting interaction in chapter 32. In verse 10 of chapter 32, God says, Therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God says, let's start over. You're the new Abraham, in a sense. Like, let's kill all these people and start over with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, don't do this. And this is very interesting. We could talk about this for a long time. Sorry, we won't. Um, because there's just so much to get to. I knew that this was going to be like, this is going to be the most overviewy sermon of any of them. Um, <clears throat> Moses pleads for them, but it's very interesting his, his the, the cause that he says, the reason for why God does not need to kill them. He doesn't say, oh, they're not all that bad. He doesn't say, oh, but look, they're so cute. Or, uh, or, or any, any, any kind of low-lying argument. He says, listen, you're God, and you just did this amazing thing. You brought these people up and in just this remarkable way, and it would be in vain to kill them. And, and I think that the most interesting part of that is that he, he appeals to God based on God's character, and says, you've done amazing things. Continue to do amazing things to these people because you, you can. It's almost like a faith statement, right? Like he has faith in God that God is able to do something with these people. And so God responds to him, and he says, and he relents. <clears throat> so, he... He institutes his covenant with them. If you turn to chapter 33, they're about to, um, they're going to set out from Sinai at some point because God says, I'm going to give you the land that I promised to Abraham. And, and so they're going to go and take the land eventually. But Moses has a concern. He says in 33 verse 12, See, you say to me, bring, this, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. 
Yet you've said, I know you by name and have found, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, Moses' concern is, are we supposed to just leave you? Like, you're going to be on this mountain, and now I've got to go out here and do this thing? Moses knows that he's not going to be able to do this. And so he, he's desperate for God's presence. He says, who's, who's going to go with me? Who are you going to give me? Because this thing that you're asking, I cannot do. And so God responds in verse 14, my presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, don't even bring us up from here. That's the right response. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. This is interesting because the name he has not given up until this point in history, uh, this name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I'm going to jump over to 3410. <clears throat> he said, God said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god." Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. He recaps some of the things that he had told him earlier with the Ten Commandments. So Moses realizes that they don't need freedom from captivity. They don't need things, all the gold and silver. They don't need all of the livestock. They don't need 600,000 men ready for war. All of those things are more than most countries had back then. But he looks on that people and he says, we don't need any of that. It's going to be a mess if we go into another place with that. We need God. And so when, as he has the opportunity to talk to God, he says, we can't go anywhere without you. 
And God responds to that with favor. And he says, that's the right response. And so as they move out from here, he is going to continue to move with them. They are going to set up this tent, this tabernacle, where they will continue to do sacrifices to him. And, they are, and he is going to live with them. They're going to, he's, going to have, um, he's going to set up the camp in such a way that they are centered around him. He's going to be in the middle. They're going to be out here. And they are going to continue to move with him. And, and they are going to move by his whim, which is the, it's, it's really cool. Um, like he, he leads them with this pillar of cloud and meets Moses and Aaron in this tent. And whenever he's mo- taken up, they move. And whenever, he's go- whenever he stays somewhere, they stay. And so they, they continue on in the presence of God, knowing that he is what they need. And, and they continue to sacrifice to him. So, there's so much to talk about here. There's so much to talk about that it's, it's impossible to cover it all. And there are so many cool interactions. We could have spent the 13 weeks just talking about this stuff. Um, but what I want to see for us is the relevance of all of this for us. Because some people look at the Old Testament, especially when they get down to the laws and all those sorts of things, and they say, it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't, um, doesn't add up. It's not interesting. And, and that is so not true. This, this account... Is, is exciting. It's thrilling because it's revealing who God is. I feel like some of us think that, man, if, if I were the Israelites, then, then yeah, it would be awesome. It would be moving, you know? Maybe I would, be, I would think something really cool about those laws, that, you know, Ten Commandments, great. Like, if I had seen the cloud and I had lived that life, then maybe... It would be exciting to me. One of, the, one of the craziest pictures in the New Testament speaks to that thought. And, and we preached on this before, back when we were in Hebrews. But I think that it's worth looking at. To me, it just blows my mind, even, even still, and I've, I've read it many times. Um, turn to Hebrews 12, verse 18. So he's talking about following after God to the Hebrews here in the New Testament. And and he tells them, we don't know the author, um, verse 18, and this applies to us. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You have not come to that, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. They refused God, and they died because of it. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God spoke and he intervened during this point in time for the Israelites, at a point in time when things were just getting, again, worse and worse, and they were suffering. He pulled them out of that in an amazing way and offered them hope. And he gave them an institution, sacrifice, and said, by this, I will forgive you if you kill the animal Instead of me, I will spare you. And he brought them to himself and said, this is how you ought to live. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying that we didn't see all that face to face. But what we have come to is even more glorious. He's not talking to people who like actually had like this vision, like they were having church one day and all of a sudden everybody saw Jesus up in heaven talking to them. He's saying this is the witness of the gospel. Just, just hearing about Christ is equivalent to this. It's better than having stood at the foot of that mountain and to have seen all of those things that went on. I think that that's, that's just, that's so beyond anything that we usually think. It's like when you hear about Jesus, it's, that, it's on that level. Like, we ought to tremble with fear and, and come to this realization that we were in a hopeless situation. Like all of us without Christ are in a hopeless situation. And so Christ came and intervened and did amazing things and offered himself up and, and gave his life for us and said, follow me, which mirrors the, the experience that they had. And, and he's saying in verse 28 of Hebrews 12 that our response needs to be Let us be grateful. Let us respond with joy. The point of the law was not to give them a list of rules. And their motivation in in heeding the law shouldn't have been to just avoid a punishment. The point of the law was to respond to the grace that God gave them. And for us as Christians, living like Christians is the way we ought to respond when Christ goes through incredible lengths to purchase us and 
I would recommend, because this is really helpful for me, it's impossible to sum up everything that is in this section of the Bible. It's just, it's massive. We're talking about like four and a half books of the Bible. Um, And so it was impossible for me to get up and do it all. I would recommend that you go and read through that, just as, as big of a chunk as you can, just in one setting. I'll be honest, I skimmed over Leviticus. Because um, I was like, okay, yeah, laws about this, laws about this, without trying to get like every implication of every law. But if you just get kind of the narrative sweep, by the time you get to Deuteronomy, it's awesome. I love Deuteronomy. And, and it's, it's reaffirmed every time I go and read through Deuteronomy. Because it's just, it's Moses' perspective on it. Like everything that they've been through. And he's so appreciative for what God has done. And he's just like overflowing with thankfulness, saying, this God is amazing. And I think that that's what you get. That's what you ought to get when you see this picture, when you hear about God doing these amazing things and working in ways that that nobody else has ever seen or heard of before. Our response to that ought to be like Moses's, where you're just like, where else am I going to go? This God is amazing, and he's done amazing things for, for me and, and I'm a broken person. I don't deserve to be anywhere close to him. And he's made that clear. Like, I can't come next to him because he's so righteous and holy and without sin. Our response needs to be brokenness and fear and joy. And, and, and we need to realize where we are that Christ is the end of all this stuff. And what, what God was doing with them, Christ has done to the nth degree for us. And... And it's hard for me in whatever time I've spent up here to communicate everything that's in there. It's impossible. But I would recommend that you just go read it and get an idea of the goodness of God who saved these people when they were not looking for him. And only by his grace were they brought up out of here and only by his power. Let's respond.